Well, welcome back onto the Bio Podcast, Jeffrey. Pleasure to chat with you once again. I thought we should have a more informal discussion because we're both artificial life hobbyists, and I've started a new recording series with Emmy Khan. Emmy's currently travelling, so I think you just dropped me an email just at the right time saying you wanted to okay. talk once again. And I thought, well, this is a great opportunity. And you're currently working on vestibular walkers. Am I right in that? Uh, yeah, it's a it's a new project. Well, it's not so new at this point that I've been working on for a while. And uh, I'll be presenting it at the uh, upcoming Artificial Life Conference. Congratulations. So you got that approved. I think that's changed since we last spoke. In terms of the way you do your hobby, if we're talking about us as, as hobbyists, I think you're a bit uh-huh. more than just a general hobbyist. I um, was actually reflecting on the first time we met. I think I was giving a talk at SRI in 2009, and you uh-huh. came down, and I, I seem to recall you were in your car, um, and we spent a wonderful day just wandering around Palo Alto together. And then we had the oh, yeah. talk at SRI. And I also uh-huh. remember coming up and seeing your artist space. I think you played the piano for me while I was with, in your presence, uh, meeting your wife, obviously, just getting a sense of the, the space and the place that you do your creative work. In terms of vestibular walkers, how long have you been working on it? On this project? Yes. Oh, gosh. Um, well, you know, in a sense, <clears throat> My brain was working on it for, for a few decades, mm-hmm. actually. Um, and it does involve various techniques that I've been, uh, tinkering with, uh, for, for a while. Uh, you know, g- genetic algorithms, which I was working on as early as Syracuse University and then, uh, Invitee Media Lab. It was the basis for my, uh, thesis project, uh, applying it towards, uh, um, locomotion, physically yes. based locomotion characters. I was working on stuff right right about when Carl Sims was doing his stuff. Certainly. And in fact, he, he and I interacted a few times at some dinner parties and so on when I was out there. And, uh, you know, I was I, I created this sort of uh, uh, what did uh, Joe Marks call it? Uh, qualitative physics. Mm-hmm. Um, and since then, I've um, become more interested in, in springs and point masses as a physical system, uh, which is lower level and more uh, troublesome in some cases, but if it's managed well, it can be a really good uh, substrate for, for physical simulation. So that's what this new simulation is based on, springs and point masses. Certainly. And in terms of what it's written in and stuff like that, I mean, are you now all Java exclusively? JavaScript. JavaScript. Very yeah. good. I was quite yeah. impressed. I loaded it on my phone. You you messaged me that you wanted to talk about it, and I immediately loaded it up. I'd loaded it on my computer previously. But it loaded uh-huh. up on my phone, and my phone didn't even get warm. So that stuff must be moving from strength to strength. Oh, good. Oh, good. Your phone didn't get warm. That's a good sign. Um, yeah, well, you know, it's uh, it really doesn't take that much computation if you write everything from scratch. Certainly. Right? Um, using, using an app, um, uh, it always comes with a lots of features that uh, various app users might or might not need. Uh, in my case, if I just write the code from scratch, it's pretty lightweight, Certainly. so it runs in the browser. And in terms of making it open source, is that part of your hobby, or do you still maintain a closed source base? Well, this will be open source because um, <clears throat> I, I do plan to put it on GitHub. Thanks for reminding me. Um, and, um, yeah, I need to do that before I uh, do the presentation because I, I want people to come and play with it. Well, if I should give a plug for GitLab, GitLab now hosts all my open source and recognizes me as an open source developer. So uh, I, okay. it's a difficulty between GitHub and GitLab. I still maintain my GitHub account. It's still linked through work, all this other stuff. But uh, 
The stuff that you get on GitLab that I found fascinating is the continuous integration, continuous development, which means I can work with other developers and just write, uh, you know, ultimately this should produce Dyson at this point and this should produce this particular format at this point. So I don't know where you're at with regards to your open sourcing. Have you looked at GitLab at all? I haven't, but I know you've mentioned it several times and I may have poked around. Is that um, who's maintaining that? It's a good question. I'm not actually, well, I know who's maintaining okay. GitHub and that's Microsoft. So yeah. my perspective is as you were unable to put Skype on your computer so we could talk about Skype last <laughs> time. Uh, Microsoft isn't always the smartest technology backer, although with GitHub, I mean, they bought something at the right time and obviously they've, um, you know, it was a wise yeah. investment choice for what they got out of it. But the thing that, likes, yeah. that I like about GitLab is that they're the second, sometimes it's best you know, as a long-term Mac user as well, sometimes it's best to use the second technology as opposed to the, you know, the most popular technology because they're still hungry and still trying to develop around it. So that's what I like with uh, GitLab. And um, every so often I give an opportunity to plug it. The stuff they do for me, uh, basically they recognize open source projects and my stuff's been open source for, you know, nearly 30 years now. So having the ability to be an uh, active open source developer while I wish it would mean that the likes of Apple and Intel would use my software more, but it has happened at least once doing that. So uh -huh. it's interesting, actually, I was thinking about this with regards to how we're both hobbyists. My perspective with regards to being a hobbyist has changed in recent years. The fact that I'm just basically developing software for myself. In terms of your own thinking, I mean, I was literally watching YouTube about intelligent agent modeling and someone name dropped you. I'm like, I don't even know how this guy knows Jeffrey. <laughs> so in terms of your stuff, um, do you think of when you start developing this stuff, are you developing it for yourself primarily or are you developing it with an end user in mind? Oh, well, I, I guess my, my main motivation is just doing basic research and, um, uh, you know, creating things that, that illuminate and, and, um, inform. Um, I, I, at the moment, this is not being developed for, game development or anything of that sort. Mm -hmm. It's basically just a research project, but it could, you know, it could move in that direction. And as you know, uh, years ago I developed, I, I did make some apps um, for Wiggle Planet, uh, which you very similar, actually physical simulation. Um, um, but, um, but no, this project is, is at the moment, it's just basic research. Interesting. So I'm going to be talking with Steve Grand later, I think later this month, actually, yeah, at the end right. of July. And one of the things about Steve is that he considers himself very much a scientist still. Do you consider yourself a scientist, an artist, both a hobbyist? Where, where do you fit in your personal perspective associated with what you're doing? Oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm sort of intentionally working outside of any of those disciplines and, you know, feeding off of, uh, off of them. Hmm. Um, so certainly not in, in any institutional sense, you know, as far as employment. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's really a mix. <laughs> <laughs> but so, I mean, the thing that fascinates me about Steve Grand is that the people that he ran a Kickstarter back in 2011 and, uh -huh. you know, that was a few years ago now <laughs> and he yeah. still has quite an active user base that all put money in from the Kickstarter or all still following his every word, and think of him very much as a scientist. Now, I've, I did a project called I Am Darwin a long time ago. I think you recorded a video for I Am Darwin back in the day. It yeah. must have been, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago now. And That's the right. thing that struck me about Darwin is that he followed the pigeon fanciers. He's 
his whole view about science was that it was much as part of the hobbyist as it was part of the scientist. And that's something that's always stuck with me, that I think of myself more as a kind of pigeon fancier than a, a proper S scientist. Uh, but Steve Grant certainly thinks of the stuff that he does still as science. I mean, if if you were put on the spot, would you ever say what you did was science or art, or are you just happy just to be dabbling? Well, I I don't think those are the three only options. Amen. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, I I you know science and art have always been um, overlapped uh, through the ages, and I think uh, to a large degree uh, these uh, realms of of Activity have been separated by institutions, academia, and so Certainly. on. Uh, the silofication. Um, <clears throat> but you know, in, in a sense, science is is uh, based on evidence and repeatability. Um, and um, so, to some degree, uh, in fact, the the artificial life uh, conference reviewers for these papers want want repeatability in these projects, which is why they want to see code and why they want to. Um, you know, make sure that the, the paper is is as accurate and precise as possible, so that someone might be able to take this work and extend on it uh, to to continue building the cathedral of science. Um, Certainly. So, so in you know, in a sense, uh, you know, by having the paper published, it it I suppose it is part of the scientific um, process. It is interesting that the source code has to be made available as part of actually getting the publication there. The, you know. Sessions. I mean, this is something that I talked with the A-Life community, or sorry, the ISIL community, more importantly, about roughly a decade ago, that making your making your research open source was critical for this kind of stuff. And it's now a requirement, you're saying, for getting your project shown at the, at the A-Life conference? Uh, I don't think it's a requirement, but it uh, it seems to be becoming more of an expectation. Certainly. Um you know, as as code becomes more open source and it becomes easier for people to develop on it, on these things yes. over the years. It is interesting. It is interesting. So in terms of what continues to inspire you, uh, obviously the, the bipedal walking is, is an inspiration. Are you thinking of you know, migrating it to maybe ants or spiders or something like that in the near future? <laughs> oh, gosh. I You know, I haven't thought beyond this particular project. <laughs> I'm so deep into it. But, um, you know, it's... Can, it can certainly go in many directions. The 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 next project that I'm going to be focusing on after this is more particle system based. Certainly. And in fact, you know, there is a commonality because uh, with the clusters algorithm that I developed, uh, there are forces between particles. So there can be um, hundreds and thousands of particles, um, and based on the forces between them, they cluster into various forms, um, and those forces, I was told by Frank Delaglio, who I'm doing a project with right Certainly. now, is the basis of molecular and atomic in, interatomic forces. So um, two atoms uh, can have a very small attraction as they get closer. And then once they get to a certain critical closeness, they're repelled by each other. So they find the perfect equilibrium of pairing. And that is, in fact, at the local Space uh, identical to a spring, a Certainly. spring force, which yes. is what I'm using for these creatures. So, in a sense, it's all particles and springs, <laughs> yes. in in one sense. And so, by by looking at the whole gestalt of 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 what what all of the stuff has in common, um, it really opens up some doors as as far as possibilities, as far as I'm concerned. 
So in terms of the movement to open source and open source sizing, what you're doing currently, are you going to borrow from that for the next project or are you creating a completely new source code repository for the next project? Well, I, I, I'm not thinking so much about code repositories. Um, I guess I'm still thinking, you know, it, the, the ideas are, 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 I guess, what's driving me more than the, the, the source code. Yes. And, you know, that does bring up an interesting question as far as how I or we or anybody manages their code over, over a lifespan Amen. of developing code over 30 or some years. I, you know, I've had times where I save parts of my code and reuse them, right? Um, and, but one interesting thing, and you may have experienced this yourself, is that, you know, after 10 years of, you come back to a piece of code, or, or maybe even a year, uh, you forgot a lot about it. Oh, yeah. You forgot, you forgot what you did. And so it takes a while to kind of put your head back into that space. And in fact, your head might be different than it was then anyway. Almost so, by definition, yes. <laughs> so at times, I throw up my hands and say, oh, hell with it. I'm just going to rewrite the code. Yes. Um, and sometimes rewriting the code, you it ends up being better than before. Mm. Um, and in fact, I've experienced uh, while I'm rewriting the code that I'll, I'll start to remember bit by bit those things that I was doing before. Yes. Um, and it's just an interesting, it's an interesting landscape in, of, of the mind where, where the memory of these projects kind of persists and some of it falls away Certainly. and some of it maintains. So, so, you know, I, oddly enough, sometimes there's benefit of rewriting code. It is interesting. Um, I think it, yeah. Yeah. I think it depends really on the purpose of the code. And, you know, obviously if there are, if there's a community of users on the code, then uh, it's important to maintain it and to keep it persistent. Um, but, you know, with the project as team, just me doing it myself, then it doesn't matter that much. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, so many thoughts came to me while you were talking about this. The thing that strikes me currently is that Polyworld is a project that I've used historically and integrated with historically, but isn't currently maintained. And really, the, the kind of source code that I maintain, I've been writing the same course, source code for 30 years, which is why... Unfortunately, I'm stuck in the C language paradigm, which in and of itself is problematic, specifically when folks such as yourself are embracing things like JavaScript in order to get stuff which is visually very attractive and evenly moving. So, so it's, in, it's in C, it's, it's not even C++, your code? Believe me, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, so, I, can, I can understand and appreciate that. <laughs> thank you. I, I, few can, but those that can, I appreciate. appreciate <laughs> but it is an yes. interesting problem because... Certainly for me, it's maintaining it on operating systems. It's maintaining the Windows code so it runs on Windows. For a period of time, uh, yeah. I maintained the Linux version. It was maintaining that, yeah. which I could do relatively easily at the time. And now, obviously, being primarily a, an Apple-based developer still, unlike you, I haven't thrown away those shackles just yet. Um, <laughs> it's about maintaining and within their graphics technology, which, you know, ebbs and flows. And, you know, I rewrote OpenGL. I rewrote an OpenGL library to persist what was OpenGL-ish of my old code and still maintain that to this day, even though I've moved away from Apple's wow. metal technology. So, a, you know, yeah, you, yeah. yeah, you, you, I mean, when people start looking at my code and I, I occasionally meet people that do still look at my source code, I get a lot of kudos from people for actually still maintaining this thing after however many years. But it's interesting yeah. the idea of the rewrite because certainly I've come to rewriting parts of my code in Java, in particular when people have, asked me to redo code. And I've always thought that JavaScript is probably the next paradigm uh, to write it in. Um, but yeah, certainly seeing your development, getting a sense of that and 
How many languages have you been through? Oh gosh, well I started with basic, mm-hmm. um, and then and then Pascal, and then mm-hmm. C, and then C plus um, plus, and then um, I guess Java. Mm-hmm. Um, I was doing some applets for a while. Uh, I'm actually doing some C sharp right now mm-hmm. uh, in Unity for a VR project. So yeah, there's I guess I've I've picked up s- several languages. Never touched Fortran, and I haven't done. Um, I haven't used any of the newer modern languages, uh, the functional programming languages. I haven't quite uh, fallen into that way of thinking. I'm still pretty procedural, and um, yeah, I, I like I like uh, object-oriented. C sharp uh, is a is a good language, and you know JavaScript. I'm used to it. Mm. It's it's not like I'm thrilled about it, but but I've I've gotten accustomed to it, and it's you know it's so very lightweight and easy Certainly. to develop. And yes, deploy. and it works so well. I mean, it's one of these things. I think I was tracking software that maintains itself, basically, and writing in JavaScript, actually, apparently you get at least 20 years' worth of JavaScript compiler benefits, and it's still stuff that was written 20 years ago still runs flawlessly. Yeah, yeah, so so that's good. Yes. So in terms of your future, any plans on the horizon other than this uh, particular, let's call it the particular project, for want of a better term, um, is that the next thing that's going to be a, a open source application? It's not open source, right? It's a specialization. Are you talking about this this uh, Walker project? No, no, the particle physics stuff that you were talking about, the the springs. Oh, and... yes, yes. Uh, I, I I intend to uh, do a revamp of the clusters algorithm. In fact, I'm developing it in VR right now mm. in 3D. Um, it's it's basically um, similar to what I did with Leap Motion when I was doing a project with them, and they they had some really brilliant uh, programmers working to to get my particles system working uh, on the on the graphics cards uh, uh, GPU so that it was very fast. So they had lots and lots of particles. Um, uh, so so I'm I'm not there at the moment, and and for that reason I'm interested in maybe putting a toe into the ocean of shaders mm. and things of that sort. Uh, a lot of voodoo down there. Um, but I think it might be, it might be worth it to, to get some, some more umph in this thing. I'm not sure if you heard my conversations with Anton Mikhailov in the podcast feed, but Anton uh, is a firm believer in using GPU technology. And it was interesting actually talking to him as he was implementing a, um, artificial life in those technologies that he was actually hitting the boundaries quite frequently. And that's one of the interesting things with regards to kind of sticking your toe in the water of these various technologies is you tend to find how far you can go relatively quickly if you're writing a life software. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I haven't explored it yet, but I, I have a couple of friends who are um, braver than I am and have, have done some shader work. So I might um, go out and have a beer with them, learn a bit more about it. Very good. Very good. Well, in talking about a hobby, I wanted to talk about something that I was planning on talking with Emmy Khan about, but I thought, since I've got Jeffrey on the line, I've got this brilliant opportunity to talk about this as well. And speaking of, I mean, I think the thing that strikes me is I've been incredibly lucky in knowing people such as yourself and kind of knowing polymaths out there um, who I can occasionally jam with and find, you know, interesting topics to talk about. One of the things that's always uh-huh. fascinated me is the Second World War for a variety of reasons. But it's the use of simulation in uh, determining aspects of the Second World War possibilities and actually trying to find, uh, you know, new. As, as we talk about finding science out of these art projects, finding history out of these art projects as well is something that's always interested me. 
So I started a project, probably my daughters weren't yet born, so it was probably about four years ago, to simulate uh-huh. London in 1940 because you can actually get full uh, maps of London in 1940, beautiful, high-resolution, detailed maps, um, which uh-huh. with my background was just absolutely fascinating. So I bought half a dozen of these, well, probably close to nine of these maps to a relatively high resolution from the University of Scotland and paid my money and got my PNG files and zoomed them in. And then thankfully my, my long-term uh, kind of software co-author, Bob Mottram, who I mentioned at the SRI talk, that was how long ago he and I had been working together, um, was able to give me about six months of his time and wrote a JSON parser so he could turn these high-resolution maps into JSON. And then you have a really interesting data problem because you have a high-resolution map of London and also you have a telephone directory from that time. But the telephone Ah. directory is unfortunately owned by British Telecom or Ah. um, Ancestry.com. Both Ancestry.com and British Telecom own the rights to telephone directory. So Uh I had the ability of knowing this exact building was a baker. This exact building made plates, metal plates. This exact building made ceramic plates. This exact building made wooden plates. And I started looking for all the professions because this is a ultimately, you know, the, the, the technology of the time that made ceramic plates was totally different to the technology of the time that made wooden plates. And actually yeah. the professions that go into doing that, like literally the people that weigh the clay and this guy, I mean, this is obviously, you know, your partner's, uh, <laughs> your partner's particular interest as well. But the, yeah. the nature of all these different things required each of them required half a dozen to a dozen professions. So you could then develop agent models around these various professions, which I found was fascinating. You could then develop an economic distribution over London. So, you know, there's more likely that there are jewellery stores in particular areas than there are bakeries. I could never get the telephone directory, which was my great frustration, because if you get the telephone directory, then you get the, the what's called in this country a zip code. I don't know. I think they call them postcodes in England. Um, and you can then say... Okay, definitively, this store made shoes, or definitively, this was a you know a tenement block where people lived, and you could start creating these aspects of simulation. So, London as a simulated entity is a really interesting thing to kind of yeah. project onto because you have a huge number of historians. I've got a close friend who walks London and creates YouTube videos as he walks various eclectic huh? parts of London. So. For me, London was never a, a second home or anything like that. It was just a place that I went to periodically. Uh, but I uh-huh. got really fascinated in this data set. Now, the data yeah. set itself is difficult because no, there are no right angular buildings <laughs> within London. And you've got the uh, exterior of the buildings, but you don't have the interiors. Now, I've written historically a means of interpolating interiors and in buildings. So that wasn't particularly hard. But the, there were kind of three or four orders of magnitude problems that I encountered. And obviously having Bob Bottrum trying to solve them in parallel was really interesting. But it all came back to simulating sea line because obviously in 1940, London wasn't a peaceful place, right? It was under attack uh, almost continuously yeah. uh, by the Luftwaffe and just the threat. I mean, Hitler made very few jokes, but the jokes he did make tended to be around how he was going to scare the English people um, in his speeches. Okay. So if you, so anyway, I got into this history. Uh, this is the past four years of my life, basically. Now, there was something uh, very interesting that also occurred over the past four years, and that's COVID. So COVID uh, yeah. created an environment where I could get access. So literally, uh, arm's length away, I have um, a home guard directory, which is a top secret 
or was at the time a top secret document, which details every single, you know, home guard in the towns in the southeast of England that they lived in and this kind of stuff. And it's interesting, actually, the professions of the people that joined the home guard. And also, similarly, at arm's length, I have a bunch of books about home guard related training. So when you have when you're modeling agents, you want to get to the fundamentals of the agent modeling as, as, as close as you can get. And with the home guard, I became very familiar, firstly, with their recruiting practices, but also with regards to the kind of professions that they were looking to recruit. Um, yeah. So you have this fascinating history. And the interesting thing is this moves to mythology very quickly. Looking at a lot of this stuff, I mean, we're talking about, you know, London not being able to get the data set to know which building is a baker. Well, the Home Guard, they're maintained by, there must be 500 of these societies in England that maintain local regional reference. Like this, this, this church was bombed at a specific time. What kind of church was yeah. it? It was a Catholic church. Okay, that was interesting. When was it bombed? Yeah. Oh, we don't know. It's somewhere in the past five years between <laughs> these dates and these dates. So you end up with even pillboxes, right? Pillboxes are really central in the defense of England. They built in just the London area about 250 pillboxes, probably closer to 500, actually. But of the ones that are still there, there are about 200 that are still actively maintained. As as Some of them, they grow gardens out of. I mean, it's really interesting what has happened to the pillboxes of London. And um, yeah. I'm part of the Pillbox Society. I joined a bunch of these different groups, including the 20th really? Century Society. The 20th Century Society is a non-government organization based out of London that represents the architecture of this period, right? Interesting, yeah. So you get all these fascinating layers, but the thing that got really scary was associated with regards to what was happening on the other side of the channel. Now, there's a whole bunch of statistics that people use in this country more than anywhere else, but they talk about how, you know, the Luftwaffe operated, they talk about how the Waffen-SS operated, they talk about why... Um, the Luftwaffe in particular had a historically large number of kills. Um, most of the time, people thankfully weren't killed in this circumstance. Most of the time, they were able to get out of the planes before they were, you know, before they landed or crashed or what have you. But the amount of data that is just in the, the history text associated with what the Luftwaffe was versus what the, you know, the British were in uh, the Battle of Britain. Uh, fascinating stuff. So, through COVID, there was a, a, I don't even know how one would describe it. It was a perfect time to buy books, basically. Okay. There were books available, very reasonably priced books. So I bought every uh-huh. possible book I could buy about the Home Guard, and hence I have a, I can reach out and touch Home Guard teaching submachine guns, teaching machine guns, teaching all these different things. There were, at the time, um, probably more than two dozen different Home Guard booklets that were sold internally within England, which trained them about house-to-house fighting and a bunch of additional things, like the Home Guard booklets that they were literally, you've got five pages of ads and ten pages of Home Guard information, then five pages of ads. They were just advertising booklets, but they were for people that were interested in joining or learning about the Home Guard. So you've Uh got both the official stuff that the British government provided, and then you've got the unofficial stuff that was provided by all these businesses at the time. So from an agent-based simulation perspective, this whole thing was fascinating uh, because I was able to get primary book, literally a book that was classified. <laughs> I was able to buy classified documents as an individual through the COVID period, wow. which was absolutely cool. stunning. Now, 
The problem that I discovered more than anything, because this is unfortunately what my daughters are going to inherit, is that I bought a wide variety of German books as well through that period of time. One gets to a certain level with the home guard, and then you want to understand why the Luftwaffe was so good at what it was doing. Well, a part of that is, is propaganda, right? Part of that is not real. It's just, you know, the German propaganda machine was well noted and documented through the Second World War and came to become the US propaganda machine, um, you know, pretty well after the Second World War. But the fascinating thing I found through this, which I haven't read, I've read a lot of Second World War histories. Um, my father's Jewish, my family on his side fought in the Second World War. Um, uh-huh. my great, one of my great uncles passed away in India of all places through the Second World War. He was po- really? had malaria, no. poison- malaria poisoning. So okay. I've gone back and found death camp records for my family. I've done a bunch of different things with history. Uh-huh. But the history that I read through this period of time, and this is primarily German books, um, is associated with how they recruited children. How they recruited children uh-huh. both with the Waffen SS, but also the Luftwaffe. The Luftwaffe recruited children as young as 14 to 16 to fly these planes. And I have these books now. I have literally a 16-year-old's collection of books as he was trained in the Waffen SS. I have a photo album of him flying in these planes. The amount of photos Mm -hmm. that I was able to obtain through this period of time is just fascinating. But it portrays a very bleak and you you don't want to be in the mindset of what happened through the Second World War in this run. But I got to this kind of extreme where now literally I have you know, collections of books that my daughters will probably never understand. The movement from, you're familiar with the the Cub Scouting movement in this country, I'm sure. The what movement? The Boy Scout movement here. Yeah, uh uh-huh. You may have heard this, you may not have heard this, but if you attain an Eagle Scout level, you can get into the American military at a higher pay grade than if you're not an Eagle Scout. You may not know that. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. The uh, Waffen-SS did that as well. They, there's a transition, the um, 12th division of the Waffen SS that were all children. They went through the equivalent of the Cub Scouts, the Hitler Youth, as it was called there, and became Waffen SS, which you're probably familiar with some aspect of the history of the Second World War, and that they were designated a terrorist group by in Nuremberg and these kind of things. So mm-hmm. I actually have in my collection the little booklet that was published in 1940 by some bureaucrat in Germany. Um, which uh-huh. instituted how the Hitler Youth or equivalent of ideological Cub Scouts fundamentally would become the Waffen SS. <laughs> and it's very bleak and curious reading, and it's very bleak and curious reading to hold this in my hands. It took me about four months through the COVID period to actually get that book. Um, but uh-huh. I basically collected a series of these books thinking that it was going to be for an agent modeling simulation, fundamentally. Yeah. And I got relatively close to that, and then I... My long-term colleague, Bob Bottrom, his father passed away, sadly. Bob Bottrom's father was an amazing botanist, an, an amateur botanist who was very much of science fundamentally. I've got a book of his, which is literally, uh, I don't know, it's about 300 pages of just reference material of the various cactuses he found. He was a cactus and succulent expert. Wow. Oh, that's cool. So yeah. absolutely fascinating. So anyway, so unfortunately, Bob Bottrom's father passed away. Bob Bottrom is caught in a bunch of different open source projects that he's working on, but he's not working on any of mine soon. I thought, okay, let's move it back from simulating sea lion. Let's move it back to simulating <laughs> London in 1940. Let's keep it upbeat and happy. Well, it's actually yeah. still remarkably interesting. I've, I've recorded a podcast, put this out, got a podcast listener to get back in contact with me. And he said, why are you looking to model football hooliganism 
which was actually part of this as well. Football hooliganism, I'm not sure if you're familiar with English football hooliganism, but they all fight differently in the various parts of London, fundamentally, that they're from. They all use different fighting techniques. There was um, University of Leicester, uh, a football hooligan study group, um, people of whom I've corresponded with. No, fascinating stuff through the 2000s. Um, they a were able to get that I would never, I would never have thought of that as a subject, but fascinating. Yes. So they're familiar with various football hooligan fighting styles. And actually they created half a dozen video games through that period of time. Of ah, football okay. hooligans fighting it out. So when I put this out in a podcast, maybe about two and a half years ago, I got an email from someone who I hope will is still a listener to this podcast. <laughs> Um, saying, why are you studying football hooliganism? That seems like a very silly thing to study as you're trying to simulate London in 1940. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it's really... And I want to shout out, actually, we have a Discord server currently for uh, the Biota podcast. You just go to biotacast.org and click on the Discord link. I'm having communications with people that have been listeners to this podcast for the past 18 years, which is just a luxury. We've been doing this for a long time, Jeffrey. <laughs> yeah, and we've it's gathered a lot of fascinating people through that period of time that listen to us. Yeah, yeah. So wow, football hooliganism, um, fascinating. So where are you now in terms of your, um, you know, looking at the history of of London in that period and simulation? So um, I had twin daughters. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, that's that's a good answer. My view is that I, it's all <laughs> it's basically Bob Mottram's work got to a period of time. We talked about GitLab early on. I wrote a lot of GitLab, um, CICD, continuous integration, continuous development to make sure that Bob Bottrom's stuff wouldn't break the London 1940 yeah. environment, um, that I created. Uh-huh. But really, this is something for, this is something more for probably a privileged lister out there to go back and discover all the source code and all the maps are still on GitLab. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea is that sometime in the next 20 years, I'm sure you do this too in your own mind. Sometime in the next 20 years, I'll be in a position where I can revisit this very interesting block of data. Uh-huh. And that's where I'm thinking of it, that maintaining it as I have and maintaining it in the environment that I've maintained it means that someone can come and literally kick off where Bob Bottrom left off. You know, someone yeah. who's obsessive. Bob Bottrom is a highly detailed-oriented, obsessive personality, very similar to me, probably very similar to you uh-huh. in some light as well. And uh-huh. it, it takes a particular kind of person to come to this data set and start exploring it. And I realized yeah. I started looking at neural networks as a means of actually building better buildings, building both the external and the internal, because the real uh-huh. difficulty was actually getting these structures, just the external parts of the buildings were difficult enough. So there are still probably 20 problems to be solved just in doing the proper exterior of the buildings, which I hope the... 20th Century Society in London would be able to do, but this is all out of their remit. It's also taught me that people in the UK, firstly, aren't aren't interested in talking about the Second World War. They're not interested in returning to it in any fashion. Uh, London 1940 is an eclectic data set for a group of people, but it's, I don't know, it just will require the right people to kind of fall into my lap, so to speak, which I've had the luxury of doing over the past 30-odd years. So my view is that the data set is there. Given the opportunity somewhere in the next 20 years, I'll re-explore it. Um, but that's the nature of these projects, right? We create them, we put them out there, we wait for the right, you know, for the planets to align and for things to get perfect. Well, it, there's also the possibility 
uh, you mentioned neural, neural nets. Um, there's also the possibility that at some point in the future, uh, an AI system like Chat GPT or some mm-hmm. some AI that's able to um, digest various uh, databases and maps and, and sources of information will be put to use to recreate some of some of the stuff. That's my hope. And of course, yeah, and and that that brings up you know the, the, some of the fascinating discussions about uh, AI and how, in my mind, uh, it will play a part in the future of history making. Mm. Because history is an interpretation of the past based on based on information, mm. and and the information that was available to a historian a hundred years ago was quite limited compared to now. Um, in addition to that, the information that we have currently uh, coursing through the internet and and in uh, on on servers and in books and everywhere is um, is vast, and a lot of it is in disinformation or misinformation Certainly. as well. Yes. So, so the the job of the historian, in a sense, is is more complex, but but vastly uh, rich and available. So, um, you know, I, I I have an interest, a personal interest in in how history will the the the, the process of creating history mm. will um, will change because of the information age. And so, perhaps London in in the forties will be recreated in simulations uh as as you're as the way you're thinking in 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 an amazing way and it may not be perfect obviously it won't be perfect but it'll be a a pretty good guess yes well that's my hope give the power of ai and it's interesting actually because i've had the best discussions with second world war history or the best discussion about second world war history with chat gpt it has a breadth of knowledge which means you can talk about the nuances of nuremberg nuremberg is the fascinating um you know set of Examples and counterexamples and, you know, what does free uh-huh. speech mean according to the Nuremberg uh, laws and all this yeah. other kind of stuff. And I right. think it's interesting that these these large language models, as they are currently, yeah. are able to dig into history in a relatively dynamic way currently, or at least Wikipedia-written history. But uh-huh. as you say, the nuances of history are not lost on most of us now. And yeah. these nuances, in fact, probably play a greater role in anything. In, in terms oh, of, yeah, yeah, in terms of your the way you've explored this is, I mean, we live some of that in terms of the software we develop and the stuff that we've experienced through our relatively short programming lifetimes. But what aspect of history fascinates you the most through this? Oh well, I'm I'm fascinated with uh, prehistory, actually, mm. um, uh, human civilization before there was such a thing as a historian mm-hmm. um, because all we have is archaeology and um, pre- preservation of certain genetic information, I suppose, in, in fossils and so on. Um, and so reconstructing, reconstructing a human uh, um, community in, in Indonesia in, in, you know, thousands of years ago would be a, a, ver- a very fascinating project. And, and that, you know, you can't use Wikipedia for that, but you can use various other sources and make guesses. And I think it's, you know, it may be a matter of how, how well the guesses are. Some of them mm. will be very vague, but, um, I, I'm just interested in, in how history might be reconstructed. You know, it, it, similarly, um, from reading Richard Dawkins, The Ancestor's Tale, mm-hmm. discussing, uh, the, the human genome and the, and the genomes of various species, 
uh, that's boy, there's so much progress is being made right now in terms of finding out about about species and and in a sense, I think what one thing that Richard Dawkins said that that really struck with me was <clears throat> every cell in your body has a history book. Certainly, every cell in your body has uh, um, an array of information in the form of genes that can be used to determine lots and lots of information, and that information is just kind of growing very fast. Right now. Yes, the, the idea of genetics as a story. I think yeah. makes so much sense in terms of just, well, it is a kind of paradigm-breaking means of looking at a relatively complex set of problems. But, yes, certainly that has yeah. uh, stuck with me too. <laughs> yes, you can think about, I mean, you know, consider junk DNA, right, mm-hmm. which is the amount of junk DNA, and and the junk DNA has a story to tell. Certainly. If, if it could be found. It's it's not, it may be useless and and currently, but there's a story there, and finding the uh, the 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 the, uh, the leftover crap that that you know is not used anymore uh, can be very interesting. Certainly, and we have dogs yeah. to think about specifically in terms of the amount of junk DNA that humans have been able to, through breeding projects and a variety of other things, create a wide variety of very curious creatures through that process. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Would Jeffrey? It's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you. Any any final topics? Any final thoughts before we wrap this thing up? Oh no! All I can say is that I'm I'm totally in finishing up a video or trying to finish up a video about this um, artificial life project, and I'll be presenting it uh, in a few weeks. And there will be a video available. I I'm not sure how public that video will be to non. Uh, uh, people not attending the conference, but I think it will be made public. So I'll definitely let you know when, when the conference is, is, is done and I'll, and I'll share everything I can. Very good. I maintain a video of when Apple first displayed my work in 2003 at the WWDC uh-huh. conference. So my view is irrespective. And obviously Apple is incredibly secretive. Well, not secret, secret is the yeah. right term, incredibly protective associated with the yeah. history of their intellectual property, even when they're showing the intellectual property of others. Um, so yeah. it's one of these things where you could create, something can be created publicly or privately. When it's created uh-huh. privately, I still occasionally, when I find the right kind of polymath in my life who would be interested in seeing my simulation work run in 2003 by a bunch of Apple engineers who were talking about optimizing it for their specific processor, which obviously is just completely lost now in history. Um, I still present yeah. them the video. So if you could do that, if you can keep your own copy of the video somewhere and present it to oh, yeah. um, a small selection of folk, oh, for example, the Discord server um, that I've been able to set up with regards to these podcasts, the I think uh-huh. there's ways of getting information out even if it is proprietary. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, and I, I also have started putting things on the archive as well. So that's uh, I'll be putting things, I'll be putting the video there. A pleasure as always, Jeffrey. Great chatting with you today. Excellent. Thank you, Tom. Take care. All right.